1718 is a yearly gathering that brings together several church youth groups in the greater Atlanta area under a common goal to know Jesus Christ and to make Him known. You're about to hear a message from 1718 Retreat delivered by Pastor Arnold O. in December 2019. Thanks for listening to 1718. One of the things that we do well as an immigrant church is that we do uh, kido and yebe and, you know, we do food and after church and all these things really well. But one thing that we have been far less successful is our ability to transmit our faith to the next generation of people just like you. So much so that statistically about 90% of you after you graduate high school will not come back to church. So there are about 300 plus in this room. So 90% of that is about 270 or 300 people. So maybe all that is left in the church. So statistically speaking, maybe only 30 of you will maintain your faith and continue to go to church after college. That's tragic. Because here, you guys are an army that God has raised up. You guys are supposed to be this mighty warrior group that is supposed to rise up to change not only your culture, but the American culture and the world. And yet, most of you will fall away. And, you know, one of the things that almost 20 years of doing ministry, what I've realized is that so many of our parents, because they don't speak English, they dump the responsibility of spiritual rearing to chandosanims and moksanims, right? And the problem is, all these chandosanims and moksanims are barely in seminary. And can I tell you a secret about your chandosanims? Yes? We don't know what we're doing, <laughs> we have no idea what to do with you guys because most of us grew up in a dysfunctional church without where we didn't have a model of good pastors modeling for us how to be godly followers of Jesus and yet now because God has somehow graced us and touched us and we went to seminary now the parents and the Moksanim says oh now you speak English you're in seminary good to go go be a Chandosanim of this youth group and you know, most of the Chandosanim, if you look them right in the eyes, they're so scared. <laughs> they're scared of you guys. Because you guys uh, represent a problem we don't know how to solve. We are so ill-equipped. We're so, uh, you think going to seminary helps us? Seminary doesn't help us at all. Seminary teaches us how to write papers, but doesn't teach us how to work with young people who are rebellious and on their, uh, on their cell phone 24-7. We don't know how to work with you guys. And yet, we have now the full responsibility of parenting a generation of young people who are more than likely going to walk away from God. That is an overwhelming responsibility. And it's not an accident why so many Chandosanis burn out. So many of them leave after a couple years, right? Because they don't know what they're doing. But the tragedy is, yes, it is bad that Chandosanims leave, but so many of you fall through the cracks. 
And the reality of falling through the cracks, sometimes you don't see it. People slip out quietly, but sometimes it is a very, very visible thing. So one in 2007, the most violent day in American college campus took place in Blacksburg, Virginia. Can we take a couple slides? Who knows who this guy is? Okay. His name is Cho Seung Hee. You know, he's Korean American. He's 23 years old. Uh, he went to Blacksburg or Virginia Tech, which is kind of the college that most of the people from my neighborhood went to. And he, uh, one day in April 16, 2007, and he took out uh, his gun and shot 32 people dead, and 25 more people were wounded. Eventually, he turned the gun on himself and killed himself. It was the single most violent day in American college campus history. You know, of course, this is tragic, right? But you know one thing, something I know that a lot of people don't know is that this young man went to church. He went to church much like you guys every Sunday. He would go to Bible studies on Wednesdays. He would come and sit at retreats just like this. He would sit at these retreats and hear about Jesus. He would sit at Bible studies and learn about what the Bible said about him. But somehow along the way, the, the truth of God's love did not penetrate this young man's heart. And then the tragedy became so visible and violent in American history, so much so that he became known as the, uh, it became known as the bloodiest day in American college campus history. Next picture. But Chosingi's story is not just an isolated incident, right? Because so many of us go through, fall through the cracks, and so many of us uh, feel like we're not being heard or understood. And I remember when we started this retreat called Living Water, uh, we had people come all from the South. And I remember one retreat we had, uh, we had a group of uh, high school gang members from Atlanta uh, that came to the retreat. Right, and um, I don't know, high school gangs are a little funny to me, but if you're in it, okay, that's cool. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of silly, right? But, um, so these guys came to this retreat and they were super rebellious. And I remember uh, Pastor Joe was saying, hey, if you're not paying attention to your small group leader, you're out of here. But back then, you know, we didn't, we didn't have discipline like that. We didn't have the uh, gumption to cut people out. So we were like, trying to love everybody, right? So these guys, their names were Uno, uh, Johnny, and a couple others, and uh, Uno was the, the tumok, or the head, right, of the, of, the, uh, of the gang, and I don't know if that was his biologically given name, right, Uno, <laughs> but, you know, I guess uh, if that's your name, don't name your kids things like that, because, uh, you know, you're kind of gearing his destiny towards something he shouldn't go. So his name was Uno, and he, he was clearly the gang leader, and then he uh, really uh, rebelled against anything that we did. Every time we had any kind of message, they would be falling asleep, and uh, they would be doing uh, things that they shouldn't be doing, like going out in the back and smoking and things like that. And so we tried very hard, but they were consistently rebellious, consistently resisting everything we were doing. And so we said, 
And we tried very hard. We prayed as a group. We continually prayed for this group of kids. But nothing worked. But one day, Uno came to one of the counselors and said, Hey, June, uh, I, have some, I, have to, I have to ask you a question. And June said, What? What's up, Uno? And uh, Uno said to June, um, Can you tell me about Jesus? And June's eyes got really big and said, Oh, you want to hear about Jesus? Yeah, let me tell you about him. And as soon as he started to tell Uno about Jesus, Uno said, no, 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 not here. You can't tell me in front of all these people because I have a reputation to maintain. I want you to meet me behind this building at midnight <laughs> and tell me about Jesus. <laughs> and, and so June, I think June got really scared. Because even in this high school gang, he's still a gang carrying on a knife, right? And he didn't know what was up with him. And, but he said, um, I want you to tell me about Jesus. And June knew that he was there to tell people about Jesus. So he said, okay, I'll meet you at, behind that building. And so I remember June went at midnight to talk to Uno about Jesus. I think he went there fear and trembling at midnight. Uno, are you there? Right? And then Uno really began to listen about Jesus. And that night, Uno accepted Christ. It was incredible. And you know, like, um, I guess, uh, like, gangs are like dominoes. So if you hit the leader, they all kind of fall, right? And I remember uh, the next day, they told me this story. <laughs> Where Uno um, stood around. We were in Delanaga, Georgia. Do you know where that is? Up in the mountains, right? So there was a waterfall. And the gang members and some of the girls who were trying to hang out with the cool gang guys, right? They're standing in a circle. And Uno took out a knife. He looked at it. And he threw it into the waterfall. And all his friends were like, what are you doing? And Uno said, I don't need this anymore because I have Jesus. That was incredible. Once Uno fell, then all of them fell, right? They all began to accept Jesus. And I remember praying on our knees, crying and weeping over Johnny and others for them to receive Christ. And I remember they were so sincere in their repentance and wanting to live a life of Christ. And so they went to a church called Hanin. Do you guys know that church? Right, so Hanin Gyoe is like a big Methodist church. And so they used to go to that church before it was this big building. It's this ugly thing that there used to be somewhere. Um, but they went to that church, and I remember it was next day, it was Sunday. And we were sitting there on Sunday, and uh, Uno and his gang members came early to service. Came early to service, sitting in front row, wearing ties. <laughs> Because they thought this is how they wanted to represent how they were transformed by God. And I remember it was such a beautiful sight. As you could imagine, this group of gang guys had threw away their attitude. And they were all sitting in the front row, worshiping the name of Jesus. And they were wearing <laughs> white shirts and ties. And they were sitting in the front row seat. 
But you know, what happened to these guys is something that still haunts me to this day. And it drives me still to this day. What happened was that after a while, the church failed to disciple and to follow up with these guys who had sincerely confessed their faith in Jesus, who had such a dramatic conversion story and experience, Uno ended up robbing a store at a gunpoint and ended up in jail. And Johnny ended up committing suicide. And this is something that is so personal to me because these are the young people that I led to Christ. But not only them, I have seen literally thousands of young people come to know Jesus. Much like you, you have experienced Christ in such a powerful way. And you shed tears and say, God, I will follow you. And I see so many of you walking away from Christ. And it breaks my heart. And frankly, so, so, so tired of it. Because it's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be where we meet Christ, where we experience the incredible, powerful love of Christ, and then somehow we find something better and walk away from Him. It's not supposed to be this way. And so I've been asking the question for the past 20 years, God, how do we stop this bleeding from our churches? Because you have raised us up. You have called each one of these people, these beautiful young people, for a purpose. But Lord, we are losing them. We are losing them. And we don't know how to stop. So I've been praying and when Pastor Joe and a couple of your pastors asked me to uh, share about the theme was grow. How do we make sure that you guys don't just go up and down roller coaster, right? So you have an experience at church, you have an experience at a retreat, and you have an experience at revival, and you feel like, God, I love you. And then you crash and burn. Maybe two weeks later, maybe two days later, maybe two hours later. But the question is, how do we keep our people from experiencing such up and down Christian experience? How do we help you guys to grow in a consistent way? And four things I, I outlined, and I wish that people had taught me when I first became a Christian. Uh, four things that I wish people had told me when I first became a Christian. And I use the acronym GROW, G-R-O-W, to help us to kind of navigate through that. Um, but first, it's uh, getting serious about Jesus, right? Getting really serious about Jesus. Second, uh, relying upon the Holy Spirit. Relying upon the Holy Spirit. So if you're keeping up, it's G-R, right? And then uh, third, is one another commandments. There are 59 one another commandments that Jesus gives to his people. And then we are supposed to carry that out as a church. And so there are one another commandments. Fourth, uh, our willingness to suffer or sacrifice for sake of Christ. 
And so these are the four things that I wish that people had taught me. But one of the things that we do really badly in the American church, and especially if you're creating American church, is that when we come to retreat like this, we sell you on Jesus and say, if you follow Jesus and say this prayer, you can experience this and you can go to heaven and you feel good and he'll help you. But we don't really clearly tell you about the conditions in which, by which Jesus wants you to follow him. We don't tell you all the fine prints about what Jesus says is that your requirement in order for you to be a genuine follower of Jesus. And I wish when I first came to know Jesus that somebody sat me down and said, this is what Jesus expects of you. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus because it's only after the fact, only after I began to walk with Christ that I realized that Jesus required a lot more of me than I initially thought. All I thought I was supposed to do was raise my hand and pray this prayer and all of a sudden that my life would be transformed and then Jesus would walk with me and I would feel good about myself. But the truth is that Jesus requires far more of us than, than we are typically sold in the Korean American church. So the question we have to ask is that what is it that Jesus is asking us? And who is this Jesus? And what is he asking of us in order for us to be a genuine disciple of Jesus? This is what we're going to talk about. And we're going to look at John chapter 6 as a way to navigate through this conversation. So in John 6, if you can turn with me, or we're going to have a bunch of scripture up on the screen. But we want you to, to begin to practice reading your scripture. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. Okay, John chapter 6. We're going to read from verse 1, okay? All right. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the, on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes, then seeing that a large crowd was coming towards him, Jesus said to Philip, where, uh, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said to, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon's Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but uh, what? But what are they for so many? Jesus said, had the people sit down. Now there was, such, uh, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to, the, uh, to those who were seated, so also the fish, so much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments 
that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then they were about to come and take him by force to make him a king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So we know this story well. The context is Passover. There are 5,000 people, just men, which means including women and children, there are 15,000 plus people sitting and following Jesus, right? And so they were following, and Jesus feasts 5,000, all of them, uh, with five loaves of bread and two, uh, two things of fish. And so one thing that I want us to understand is that first category of people that Bible calls in verse 1 is what? What's the category of people Bible identifies? Verse 2, sorry. Large crowd. So there was a crowd, there are 15,000 plus crowd following Jesus. And the thing about them is that they were so excited about the miracle that Jesus did that they were ready to make him king by force. And so this is why Jesus came, right? To become king. So, but what we see Jesus doing is instead of being excited, what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He goes to the mountain. He runs away, right? Basically, Jesus runs away. But now, there are a lot of you guys. There are about 340 of you guys. But imagine 15,000 people showed up to this retreat. 15,000 people. Pastor Joe, Pastor Esther, what do you think they would do? They'll be like, wow, this is incredible. This is a revival. It will start an Instagram page, right? A YouTube channel, a blog. They will start a, some kind of camp to begin to uh, train people up. But instead of Jesus being excited, Jesus slips away from the 15,000 people that is trying to make him king. What is going on? The question we have to ask is that why would Jesus hide or run away from people that is trying to make him king? In order to first understand, we have to first understand who the crowd was. So if you go to the next slide. Can we go to the baseball slide? Diamond slide. Is there no? Oh, yeah, okay. All right. So that's my handwriting. Um, <laughs> it's not a professional thing. But the crowd uh, we see is uh, one form of people that were following Jesus. But the nature and the character of a crowd, next slide, was that motivation of crowd was what? Why were they following Jesus? They're curious. And their commitment to Jesus was what? Minimal, almost zero, because they weren't really following Jesus because they loved him and wanted to serve him. They were curious about what this man Jesus was doing. So what they did was follow him around wherever he went, seeing the performance of his miracles, and they were excited. They were curious, but their commitment to Jesus was none. And so many of our churches are filled with people who are curious about Jesus without any commitment to him. 
But we see a different kind of people in John 6, 24 through 25. So let's go there. John 6, 24 through 25. I don't know if we have the slides. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went across to Capernaum to look for him. They found him on the other side of the lake and asked, Rabbi, when did you get here? So we see that Jesus has slipped slipped out from them. And there was another group of people who got up early in the morning to follow Jesus all the way across the sea. So these, we see them were committed or willing to sacrifice their time, their energy. It's like coming to early morning prayer. So when you see a young person come to early morning prayer, what does Chandosanim do? Well, if Tanzanasan means there, they will flip out, right? Because, you know, they will be amazed at young people coming to early morning prayer. So we see that this group of people that follow Jesus and are sacrificing their sleep and they went across looking for Jesus, there were people who were committed to Jesus. Look what they say. Look, uh, look in verse 20, um, verse 28, look what it says. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So these weren't just people who were just interested in following Jesus. They sacrificed their sleep. They sacrificed their energy. They left their families behind, went across the sea to say, Jesus, we want to follow you. Not only follow you, but we want to do the works that you do. Man, when you see a Chandosanim sees such a young person, what would we do? We'll be like, wow, be the praise band leader. Wow, be the youth group leader. Wow, be a chipsanim. I don't know, like, be something because then you show so much commitment. And there'll be such a uh, uh, dedication and honor that we would want to promote them to have positions of leadership within the church. But look what Jesus says to uh uh, to this, this group of people who follow them across the sea in verse 26. Let's read it together. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. Jesus doesn't command them. Jesus doesn't clap for them and say, Oh, 잘했어. 이렇게 열심히 왔어. Oh, 너무 귀해. Oh, 너무너무 자랑스러워. You think that's what Jesus would say, right? You sacrifice your time much like you guys. Sacrifice money, sacrifice time, come to a retreat. And we're supposed to say, wow, good job. You guys are doing such a great job. And it is good. But what Jesus says to his disciples is something far different than what our expectation is. Jesus says, the reason you follow me is what? I fed you. (laughs) The only reason you follow me is because I give you food. The only reason you follow me is because the things that I do for you. What Jesus is saying is the only reason we follow Jesus in this way is because the personal benefit that we receive from following Jesus. And Jesus is not particularly fond of that. 
We go to the next uh, slide. The characteristics of this group. Maybe we call it uh, the, the follower characteristics of follower. Yeah. Okay. So the characteristics of follower is their motivation is personal gain. Their commitment to Jesus is conditional. Does it make sense? So we will follow Jesus because all the things that Jesus promises us, the things that Jesus says that he will do for you if you follow him. So so many of us follow Jesus not because that we love him purely, but we follow him for the things that he promises to do for us, such as help us to feel better about ourselves, help us to become more successful in family, to help us in our relationships, to help us to become financially more stable, or all the benefits that Jesus offers is the motivation for most of us to follow Jesus. From the outside, we can't tell the difference between a follower and a genuine, committed uh, disciple of Jesus because they look like they do the same things. But Jesus is interested in not looking at your external works, but Jesus is interested in looking at what? Your hearts and your motivation. And unless Jesus sees a motivation that's different than personal gain, then Jesus is not impressed by your commitment to him. Doesn't matter how much you sacrifice. Doesn't matter how much you're willing to give to the church. What Jesus is saying is that what he wants is more than your conditional commitment. Because this is why so many of us fall, right? Because when the commitment begins to outweigh the benefit, when the cost begins to be too much, then we begin to say, maybe Jesus, this is not for me. And we begin to walk away. And so Jesus says to these people, but the thing about these group of people is that Jesus is not angry at them. Jesus doesn't say to them, look, I'm so mad at you, nor is he mad at you, nor is he too upset with you. But what Jesus says, that there is something that you must do. And let's look at that together. Uh, So in verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you must believe in him who he has sent. So the work that you, if you're in this category, the work that you must do in order for you to grow in Jesus is to believe in the one who's been sent to you. Amen. So what Jesus is saying is that he's not upset with this group. He's not even uh, mad at them. But what he's saying is that in order for them to become full disciples of Jesus, there's one thing that they must do. It's not to lead praise. It's not to lead Bible study. It's not to go to early morning prayer. But your job is to believe in the one that's been sent to you. But what does that mean that you're supposed to believe in the one that's been sent So let's look at um, verse 
sorry, sorry. Um, oh, sorry, verse 27. Let's look at verse 27. Let's read it together. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Amen. Uh, I like the, mes- uh, the message translation. It says this. Don't waste your energy striving for perishable foods like that. Work for food that sticks with you, food that nourishes your lasting life, food the Son of Man provides. He and what He does are guaranteed by God the Father to last. Amen. What God is saying is this, that we are supposed to spend time getting to know not the things that He provides, but Jesus as a person. And it is only when we learn to love Him rather than the things that He provides that we can move beyond being a follower of Jesus. Our job is not to only to focus on what it is that I'm offering as Jesus, but it is supposed to be focusing on the actual relationship with Christ. But you may say, but Pastor Arnold, what about school? What about relationships? What about my education? What about my family? Aren't these things important too? But what Jesus is saying is that when you focus on Christ and Christ alone, he will provide everything else for you in your life. When you seek the kingdom of God first, he will provide everything else for you. This is true. It is when you focus on Jesus with all of your heart that he promises to work out your life according to the plans that he has for you. But if you hold on to your plans for yourself, what happens is you are canceling out the plans that God has for you. For sake of time, I'll tell the story real quickly. I I got married when I was 37 years old. I got married pretty late. But when I was 20, uh, I'm sorry, 36 in 2009, God asked me, Arnold, are you willing to uh, be a full-time missionary? I said, Lord, whatever you want, I'll surrender my life to you. And in that moment, uh, God spoke three things to me. God said, Arnold, you're somebody that I love. Arnold, you're somebody that I've chosen. You're somebody who will finish the work that I've given you to finish. I said, thank you, Lord. I received that. And then during that time, I was dating this young lady and who were dating for about two years. And, you know, I was 37 years old, and I thought I finally found this one woman that I was going to spend the rest of my life with. And I was like, ah, oh, this is awesome. But then when God spoke to me about being a missionary, I had to ask this young lady. I said, are you interested being a full-time missionary. And she said, no, I'm not interested in becoming a full-time missionary. I can do two months out of the year during the summer, but I can't do the full life on missionary thing. And so I had to break up with her. So literally the next day I broke up with my girlfriend who I thought I was gonna marry. And so I was praying, I said, God, I am 37 years old. Right? My mom is calling me every day. Right? Mom, back off. God has it. 
right? And so, but then I couldn't even tell my mom, mom, I broke up because I thought she was like, oh, now finally, right? And so I was, I thought I was getting married, but now all of a sudden I had to break up in obedience to God, right? So if between God and something else, what do you have to do? You have to seek God first. Because when you seek God first, what does he do? Then he will provide everything else for you. But that's scary because the, whatever you're holding on to is comfortable. You know it. But the hope that God is saying to you, saying believe in this, is something that you can't see with your eyes, right? So I said, God, um, now I'm supposed to find a new, new girlfriend and then go through the entire process. And so I was praying in January of 2010, and the Lord spoke to me clearly and saying, you will be married this year. I said, God, not only would I, you're saying that now would I only find a girlfriend, start to uh, date her, and then now I'm supposed to marry her in this whole one year? It didn't happen for 37 years. So it better be you because there's no way this is going to happen in the natural, right? And so I was uh, really uh, just had my eyes open and just asking the Lord about the process. And one day, uh, my brother-in-law, uh, some of you know him, is Pastor Hedgin Lee from uh, New Bethel. And so he, he went to school with me. He said, hey, Arnold, um, he saw me at school and he said, hey, why don't you come to my house for dinner? And, you know, when you're a graduate student, free dinner is always a yes, right? So he said, yes, I'll come to your house. So I went to his house and I was driving to his house. I get the sense that he is going to introduce me to somebody. And I said, okay. So I go and lo and behold, Pastor Hedgen says, hey, I want, you to, I want to introduce to you uh, my sister. I said, oh, okay. Uh, that's, thank you. And so how did that come about? He said, well, uh, about two years ago when I went to get ordained in L.A., I met a man, a pastor who was a friend, and I was asking him, do you know somebody that my, my sister could get married to? Or somebody, then can you introduce somebody to my sister, my sister because she's having a hard time finding a husband? <laughs> and so if she was here, she would not like that statement. But... Um, <laughs> She said, she would say, no, I didn't want to choose anybody, right? Um, and so, uh, because, yeah, anyway, so, um, so she says to me, so he's, he says, uh, he says, as this one pastor, and this Moksanim says, oh, Arnold is a really good guy. But the thing about that relationship was that it's a funny statement because I had dated uh, that pastor's uh, uh, sister-in-law, and then I didn't do right by her. I, I, I wasn't a good boyfriend. And so I ended the relationship in a really bad way. And I don't know why he said Arnold's a good guy, because I'm sure he heard bad things. Uh, I don't know why, but he said to Pastor Hedgin, saying, hey, Arnold's a good guy. So Pastor Hedgin knew me, but he didn't particularly like me. Right? Because Pastor Hedgen is a very like Mobom Seng style. I'm not like that at all. Right? And so back then I used to have earring and I had my head shaved. I had like really baggy pants and I, I know it's kind of hard to imagine right now, but you know, I had, uh, I was a little rebellious and so he didn't like, he didn't like what he saw. And it's like, there's no way I'm going to introduce this man to my sister. 
right? So then a year later, and when my wife came to do, be an exchange student in Kentucky, they drove to Kentucky, and uh, they went to a Korean-American church, and they went to a, a pastor, and my brother-in-law sogeed my sister, uh, my, his sister, my wife-to-be, and said, this is my sister. Do you have somebody that you can sogeed her to? Introduce her to. And this pastor, who's a different denomination in Kentucky, who had no relationship to this other pastor in LA, says, Arnold is a really good guy. And so Pastor Hedges says, huh, maybe there's something there. So he talked to his mother, this Kidowan Wonjangnim type, right? And so she told my brother-in-law, I had a dream year, one year prior to you telling me this. In the dream, my, uh, my daughter, Hesun, brought her husband-to-be from the U.S. in the dream. And in the dream, she said, uh, my wife said to my mother, this is uh, to her mother, this is your, to, uh, your son-in-law. And she said, I don't want an American son-in-law. And then my wife in the dream says, but he's Korean-American. And she says in the dream, then that's fine. In the dream, my mother-in-law sees my face two years prior to even meeting me. And then, when the parents get together to talk about the arrangements of the marriage, my mother and my mother-in-law met in Namdaemun Shijang, which is this crazy open-air market in Korea with million Korean ajumas, right? And they all had the like bogul bogul like that hair, right? They all have the same hair. And then out of the thousands and thousands of Korean ajumma, my mother-in-law remembers the dream and says, that's Arnold's mother. She picks her up, right? What was crazy is that, so... When I went to talk to my brother-in-law's house, or my brother-in-law's house, all of this had been discussed, and I was just walking into thinking I was getting a free taco, right? And so I went, and the mother-in-law had already called and said, what do you think? And they all already had decided the fate of my future. <laughs> I was walking into like, or I don't know what I was walking into, but so I walked into this, and then the next day, or so he gave me an email to my, my, uh, his sister, and so we started emailing back and forth. And, you know, so uh, she came uh, to visit me during spring break, and she said, uh, we met, right? We met during spring break in 2010, and we first met. And you know what happened? There was zero attraction. <laughs> God had set up all of this, and I had no feeling for this young lady at all. And she didn't have any feelings for me either. And so when we would go out on these dates, they were so awkward. You could imagine, like, this it's like it was so hard. So every date, I was just so glad for it to be over. By the fourth date, I was just thinking, okay, 
I just have to suffer two more dates, and then this will be over with, and that'll be the end. And I remember the fourth date, and I was just going to say, oh, just suffer two more dates and say, all right, this was good. Thank you, but no thank you. But end of the fourth date, my wife says to me before she gets out of the car, she says to me, Arnold, the first time I heard about you, I got on my knees and I started praying. God told me three things. Do you remember what God told me? Arnold's somebody that I love. Arnold's somebody that I've chosen. Arnold's somebody that will finish the work that I've given him to finish. She says the exact three phrases that God spoke to me in earlier or the year before. And I started weeping. And as I started crying, I said, God, this is the woman that you have prepared for me. And so we agreed to get married that day. <laughs> I mean, what, what else do you want? <laughs> what? So if you're dating more than four dates, so you're wasting your time. You need to pray and seek the Lord's face. Why are you wasting your time? <laughs> because think about it. She was holding the lotto ticket, right? The probability of God speaking those three exact sentences to my wife-to-be that God spoke to me the previous year when I said, God, I, my life is yours. I'll give it to you. I'll do whatever you want. In that moment, God had already set in motion two years prior because he knew my heart condition that would say yes. And he already set in motion so that God will prepare a wife for me in 2010 so that I could be married that year. Do you understand? Our God is like that. If you seek the kingdom of God first, everything else will be added unto you. If you are alone, if you feel lonely, seek the kingdom of God first and everything else will be added unto you. If you're struggling about your future, you're struggling about your career, what you're supposed to be made to do for your life, seek the kingdom of God first and then everything else will be added unto you. You're struggling with depression. You're struggling with pornography. Seek the kingdom of God first, and then everything else will be added unto you. Struggle with finances. Struggle with your career. Seek the kingdom of God first, and everything else will be added unto you. Amen. What God wants are people who says, God, you are greater than I will seek you above all else. And then God promises and just watch how God will provide for you. The reason you have not experienced the goodness of God to the degree that God promises, the words that God says in scripture, you have not experienced that for yourself is because you have not sought God first in your life. God's word is true. Let everybody else be a liar. The word of God is true. God says it. You test him in this. He will make it come to pass. 
the reason why you have not seen the power, the reason why you have not tasted the goodness of God is because you have not entrusted, you have not entrusted God with your heart and your decisions in your life. So John 6, 53 through 56 says, So Jesus said again, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of Son of Man and drink his blood, you cannot have eternal life within you. But anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise that person at the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood, uh, my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. What Jesus is saying is that if you can only taste and see and experience what I can provide for you, if you don't seek to satisfy the things of your desire with other things of the world and cheap relationships and cheap pornography and cheap success, if you let me guide you, then you will see how good and profound and satisfying my provision for you is. We have not tasted, even began to understand how good Jesus is because you have filled your stomach with useless things of this world. And so we see uh, John 6, 60 and 66. Many of his disciples said, this is very hard to understand. How can anyone accept that they understood what Jesus was asking? Can you give up everything and let me be the center? At this point, many of the disciples turned away and deserted him. And John 6, 67 says, Then Jesus turned to his disciple and asked. He looked his disciples, the twelve, right in the eyes and asked, Then do you want to leave too? Do you understand what Jesus is asking? Jesus is asking, do you want to follow me at the cost that I am outlining for you? Do you understand? All 15,000 people had now deserted Jesus, and now it was down to 12 people. And Jesus looks at his disciples right in the eyes and says, do you want to leave too? This is the same question in Matthew 16, 13 through 15. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they reply, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? This is a profound question that we cannot miss here today, young people. God is asking, who do you say that I am? And what is your response? We cannot miss the heart behind Jesus' question. Who am I to you? What do I mean to you? What am I worth to you? 
Do you follow me because of all the benefits? Am I a God with benefits? Or do you love me as I am? It is a heartfelt question that Jesus asks every follower of Christ. Do you love me? For my sake and not for what I offer you. Can you say, Jesus, you are my all in all? Do you love me more than your success? Do you love me more than your friends? Do you love me more than even your mother and father? This is a question that all of us have to answer. But this is what Peter says. Where else can I go? To whom would we go? You have the words that give eternal life. We believe and we know you are the Holy One of God. Where else can I go? Jesus, there is no other option. Jesus, you are my only option. Church, what we have to understand is that this is the fundamental state of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Just because you say, I experienced Christ and you shed tears here and there does not make you a disciple of Jesus. Do you understand that? Just because you say, God, I'm going to come to you on a Friday night service. I want to come to you on a Sunday service. I come to Wednesday night prayer meeting does not necessarily make you a disciple of Jesus Christ. A disciple of Jesus Christ says, Jesus, there is no other. You are my only option. There is no one else that I can follow. There is no other commitment that I can make. You are the only way, the truth, and the life. So the disciple, the look of a disciple, can we go to the next slide? The characteristics of a disciple, the motivation for disciple is what? Can we say it? Truth. That Jesus is the truth. He's the way and the life. And the commitment to Jesus is what? Total and complete. Or another way to say it is that there is no other option. It's only when you can say this with your own heart that you become a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. And when Jesus hears Peter saying this, he says on that statement, I will build my church. The reason why so many of our churches are so weak and we fall away so quickly is because our foundation is not upon Jesus, but our foundation is upon the followers of Jesus who only follow Jesus as long as it benefits me. But Jesus says, I want to build a new foundation and a new generation. He says, I want to build a new generation who's willing to say, God, you are the only way. There is no other option. And I believe you are such a generation. You may say, Pastor Arnold, this is so intense. First of all, this is just word of God. But an analogy, if I said to my wife, 
Honey, I love you. 51% of my heart. But 49% of my heart, I love this other woman. But no, 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 no. But you're the majority. 51. I know your math isn't good, but 51% is greater than 49. Right? You should be pleased. Would your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend accept that? No. If, if somebody says yes, you, you shouldn't be with that person, right? <laughs> right? Okay. But what if you said 75%? Honey, I've been praying, and God gave me 24% increase. <laughs> and my heart towards you. I love you with 75%. But 25%, I love this other woman. Should should she accept that? Ladies? No, right? No. No. Because love demands what? 100%, right? Love is not good enough when it's 99%, not 90%, but 100%. Because love demands all. Love is jealous. And what God says, I have given you what? 100%. And he wants what back from you? 100%. We have to ask the question. If we could get to that diamond picture, where are you? I know you guys are amazed by the handwriting. But where are you in that baseball diamond? Are you a crowd? You're just curious about who this Jesus is. Or are you a follower who have experienced, who have maybe shed tears, who have tasted and seen that God is good? Or are you a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus, there's only one category that satisfies Jesus' heart. Which category do you think that is? Disciple. Everything else is not good enough. Jesus wants 100%. And he asks us this question. Who do you say that I am today? In Matthew, they say things like, Jesus, uh, they say, Jesus, you are uh, a prophet. They say, Jesus, you are a good teacher. But Peter says, Jesus, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Be careful how you answer. Because if you believe that Jesus is a good teacher, you may respect what he teaches, but he does not demand from you a full commitment. If he's a good moral leader, he may be a good example and inspiration for you to follow, but he does not demand full devotion to you. But if you say with your lips that Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, what Jesus demands is a 100% full commitment of your heart where you place nothing above who Jesus is. Not your family, not your friends, not your school, nothing else must come above Jesus. And it is only when you follow Jesus such a way that Jesus is able to build his church of Jesus Christ. 
Because the foundation on which Jesus desired to build his church, as scripture says, are on the foundation of disciples. The question we want to ask tonight, I know I'm way over time, so do we need to cut it off? Can we go, okay, a little bit longer? All right, thank you. All right, so I'm going to invite the praise band to come up, and um, I want us to have a time to respond a little bit. As the praise band is coming up, I want us to begin to uh, really meditate upon that question. Because Jesus is asking each and every one of us this question. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? What is your response? What Jesus is demanding from us for far too long, we have lowered the bar so much to say that, hey, all you have to do is to pray a prayer. All you have to do is say the sinner's prayer, and then you're good. But this is, we have misled you for a long period of time because what Jesus actually says in Scripture is not just say this prayer, and then you are good for your eternal life. That's not what Jesus says at all. Jesus says that if you want to be my follower, you must be willing to take up your cross, lay down your life, even hate your mother and father relative to your love for Jesus. You must even be willing to lay down your life in order for you to follow me. You have to know how good and wonderful I am in order for you to be a genuine disciple of Jesus Christ. But for far too many of us, we have simply said, Jesus, I said this prayer of repentance one time three years ago, two years ago, six months ago. And now I don't know why I don't feel your presence in my life anymore. And he began to wonder even if your experience was a genuine one at all. But when Jesus called you, he didn't call you to a prayer. He calls you to a genuine and ongoing, 100% dedicated relationship to Him because that's a relationship that He's given to you. We have to respond to the Lord tonight. Some of us have to say, Lord Jesus, I misunderstood what you've been asking. I thought if I just showed up to church, I thought if I just showed up to Bible study, I thought if I just came to the retreat, that you'd be satisfied. But the Lord is very clear tonight that he's not satisfied with that. He wants so much more from you. He does want 50%. He doesn't want 75%. He wants 100%. Who do you say 
that I am. If you say that Jesus is the Lord, it's a far different commitment than if you say Jesus is a teacher. If you say Jesus is my Savior, it's a far different commitment than if you say, Jesus, you are my moral example. But if you say with your lips, Jesus, you are my Lord, then Jesus demands everything from you. Are you willing to give it? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Can we all stand? Praise band leads us in a song. I want us to just listen to the spirit that keeps asking you tonight, who do you say that I am? Jesus says to us, count the cost. Before you make the confession, count the cost to see if you're willing to go all the way with Jesus. Because Jesus It's not one who begs. But Jesus says that I have the truth. I have the life. I have the blueprint for your life in my hands. I have the love that you've been seeking. I have the truth that you've been seeking. I have the hope that you've been seeking. But he can unlock those things until you say, Jesus, you are my Lord and Messiah. There is no other way. If there is another way, you need to choose the other way. Because Jesus does not want competing loves in our hearts. If there is another possibility, then Jesus weeps for you. But you need to taste and go the other way. Because Jesus wants to be the only way. This is what he's calling this generation to. A generation that is not compromised. A generation that's not willing to say, God, there are other things. Jesus plus something else. I want Jesus and Jesus alone. you began to respond to Jesus and say Jesus you are my Lord you are my Messiah I give you all that I am I'm tired of living compromised lives that I am 
say that I am. If you're a part of the followers, God's not mad at you. You've been following Jesus because of the benefits that he offers. He's not mad at you. But he wants you to understand there's more. You have to get to know the nature and the beauty and the wonder of who he is. The more you get to know him, the more you will love him. And it becomes easier and easier to willing to let go of other things because of who Jesus is. If that's you, will you say, Jesus, show me more of you. Show me more of you, Jesus. I want to see who you are. I want to taste and see the goodness that you offer. Will you begin to cry out? And if you are a curiosity uh, crowd, just following because you're like, hey, I got nothing better to do. That's okay. We're not mad at you either. But will you say, God, if you are real, if you feel the reality of who you are to my heart this week, this weekend, it's not an accident that I'm here. I'm curious to reveal yourself to me. So we begin, can we begin to pray? Can we begin to pray and ask God to reveal more of who he is? For some of you, you just need to commit more of what God is asking. You did not understand what God was asking, so you have not made a full commitment to him like that. But if that is you saying, God, I want to be a disciple, will you begin to say, Jesus, I want to be a follower or a disciple of Jesus who compromises nothing. I want to follow you with all of my life, even if it costs me everything. Will you begin to pray that Thanks for listening to the 1718 Podcast. We hope you were blessed. Join us next time on 1718.